And we'll be starting in chapter 3, verse 16. But before we get there, uh, what we have started doing here at Mission is praying for the unreached and unengaged peoples of the world, those who do not currently know Jesus. Um, and so I wanted to show you a picture. So this is the people group that we'll be praying for this morning, but I wanted to encourage you first with uh, what Jesus said. He walks into the temple and he sees money changers and he flips the table and he drives everyone out and he says to them, my house, my temple will be called a house of prayer for the nations. And so this morning we pray for the Nalu people. As you can see, they live along the coastal lagoons of southern Guinea. They mainly grow rice in this marshy area that is flooded six months out of the year, during which, the time, during which time the only way to get around is by canoe. The men fish and grow kola nuts. The women grow rice. And historically, they have believed in a single god known as Kanu, assisted by male and female spirits. The people, to some extent, converted to Islam in the 1950s. They may have a confused worldview because of this with a mixture of traditional religion and Islam. So, for us this morning, here's what we pray for. We pray that Christians around them would genuinely care for the physical needs of the Nalu tribe, that they would find ways to assist them and build bridges of friendship. We pray that the Nalu people will be given the gift of hearing clearly of Jesus. We pray that each person in the tribe will hear at least once who Jesus is and what he has provided for them. And we pray that they hear it in their mother tongue and hear it without confusion or uncertainty in the presentation. Let's pray for this. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, what this day means for us. And we pray that as we come together to celebrate, God, that you would not um, let your name be profaned throughout the nations, that you would bring people to salvation, those who currently do not know you, specifically the Nalu people, Father. Would you bring them to faith? Would you use um, the analogy of their God? Would you show them um, a better version of that through Jesus Christ? Would you let them hear about Jesus so that they too may get to celebrate something like Easter, something like a Resurrection Sunday? God, would you save them? Would you be with the, uh, the few Christians that are among them, if there are any? And would you give them courage and boldness to proclaim the gospel to these nations, Father? In all of this, we, we look to you because this won't happen without your work in your people. And so we pray for it to happen, Father. We pray that, that this day right now, you would secure a resurrection Sunday for them as well. So that when they do pass on, they too will be resurrected. In this, Father, we thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Malachi 3, 16 is where we'll begin. But where are we? In the beginning, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, God called everything good. There was no sin, no cancer, no tears, no illness, no shame, no pain, no death. 
Man was in the presence of God Almighty and was like him and was perfect in glory, just as God had created them. It was good, just not good enough for Adam and Eve. They sinned. And all at once, sin, cancer, tears, illness, shame, pain, and death entered the picture. But most importantly, this sin marred the image of the glorious God in humanity. And so God had to banish them from the garden. For it takes the glory of God to be in the presence of God. And so humanity is out with no hope of ever returning because sinful hearts are far from God and they love to be far from God. The only way back into a proper relationship with the Father is if there is an utter act of the Father to fix it. And that's what God has promised from the very beginning. That one day his son would crush the serpent and thus crush sin and death forever through his son. So where we are now in this book, they haven't seen him yet. They have not seen the Messiah. What we look back to has yet to come for them, but they think it might. The, The people in this book, the reason why God is giving them this message is because they think uh, that Jesus is coming in this time. And it's not a horrible assumption because they just came back from 70 years of exile. And when they came back, Israel was in ruins. But they've rebuilt everything. They rebuilt the walls through Nehemiah and they rebuilt the temple. Um, And so their hearts, they're looking with anticipation for this Jesus, for this Messiah to come and to save them, to reign supreme over his kingdom and take them home. But he doesn't come. And he won't come for another 400 years. So our people here become weary of following God. They're waiting on God's promises to come to to fruition and they're tired of it. They are tired of waiting on their Messiah. What kind of love is this? God's not fulfilling his promises. Surely he doesn't love us. Surely he loves the wicked nations around us because just look at them, they're prospering. It wasn't enough for them to live on the promise alone and so their hearts flee from God. They started to lose trust in their father and it showed in their lives. It's the same pattern we saw in the garden and it's the same pattern we see today. God's promises aren't enough. We need more so we go and search for it in our sin. Yet God, in his grace, sends a message through the prophet Malachi, and that's why we have this book. God starts by saying in chapter one, I have loved you. And if that wasn't enough, if that was not the message that they just needed to hear and that was it, he says, I have loved you, but that wasn't enough for you. You profane my name with your sin. It should be enough for you that I love you because you don't deserve my love. But you run from me. And then in chapter two, God says, take it to heart to give glory to my name. Look at my covenant that I made with Levi. It is a covenant of mercy. I call them perfect and they are not perfect. How is that true? It's because of my mercy to make them perfect by faith. And then last week we saw God's call to his people to return. He says, return to me and I will return to you. And the basis for that The basis for why they are to return is because the Lord does not change. This small book is nothing but the tender grace of a loving father. 
Because even though their hearts are far from him, even though they're offering up mutilated sacrifices, even though no one is truly caring for the glory of God or the people around them, God extends mercy to them and says, I love you. I do not change. My mercy has not changed. So return to me and I will return to you. And then for the last few verses of the book of Malachi, and the last things that God will speak for over 400 years until Jesus does come, God is going to remind them once more of what happens, what becomes of those who do return, and what becomes of those who do not. The implications are eternal. The implications are eternal because repentance, returning back to God, is a sign of the faith that saves them. And so no repentance then means that there is no sign of faith. And so there is no salvation. This same message is for you and for me. Because there is not a single one of us in the room who does not sin, which means there is not a single one of us in the room who does not need to return. Our lives are constantly marked by sin, even if we are saved, yet God in his grace and mercy is calling to us by the book of Malachi, return to me. We need to hear this same message of mercy because the implications are still eternal. Repentance is a sign of the faith that saves us, and so no repentance is a sign of no faith, and thus no salvation. So with this in mind, let's read beginning in verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and, evil, and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name... The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning after reading your word and we say, would you help us? God, we know that it is by your word that we are transformed. It is by your Holy Spirit doing surgery on our hearts because of what we read in this word. So would you do it, Father? Would you open the, the eyes of our mind and the, uh, the eyes of our heart? Would you open us for what you have for us in your word? God, whatever 
uh, distraction we have in this room this morning, whatever uh, we came to this uh, building with this morning, I pray that you would remove it for this time. That this would be a time with you and your people alone. Because the truth is we have so many things, God. We have so many things going on, vying for our attention. Would you remove it for this time so that we can spend time with you? And for me, Father, if there is anything I say that is not of you, I pray that you would make us all forget it. And if, if it comes to mind, God, would you keep it from my mouth? that you would be lifted up, that you would be glorified, that, that nothing I say would distract from the glory of the gospel. Father, would you help us to marvel at a day like today? In all of this, God, we pray because we need your help. We cannot do it, but we know that you can through us, so would you? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The implications of these verses are eternal. Because repentance is a sign of the faith that saves us, and no repentance then is a sign of no faith, and thus no salvation. Let's look at verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction. So this is... Uh, when this burning day, when Jesus does return, you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. There are two camps of people and no more, no less. There are those who serve him, there are those who do not. There are righteous by faith and there are wicked. <clears throat> For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That just means that they will not come back. This is eternal damnation. This is hell. Hell is described elsewhere in 2 Thessalonians 1 seven through nine, as being when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When Jesus comes back to earth, he will start doling out punishments to those who did not obey the gospel. He will come as a blazing fire that will finally and forever purify the believing and burn up the unbelieving. The main thing that we should see here is that God is not to be trifled with. Hell is a real place and God is absolutely and completely justified to send everyone there because of their sin. Hell is the deserved punishment for those who see the grace of God to them in Jesus Christ and who turn from it and say, I don't need that. It's for those who sin and fall short of the glory of God. It is for those who profane the name of God. Why is that true? 
Why is it true that if we profane the name of God that we, we deserve eternal destruction? Because Isaiah 43, 7 says, you are called by my name. I created you for my glory. The whole reason we were created is to glorify this God and to worship his name. And so if that's not happening, then punishment should come. The reason God has created you and I is for his namesake, for his glory. Humanity's issue is that we don't. We don't glorify God. And so, in order to make sure his name is not profaned, God will send sinners to hell. This is not unfair. It shows God to be faithful and just. Because God is the one who sets these terms, and if God does not enforce the terms that he has set, he does not keep his word, and thus that makes him unfaithful, which he cannot be. Hell shows the glory of God's justice. Hell glorifies God. But more importantly, hell makes mercy that much more beautiful. What's the point of God saving us if he doesn't save us us from anything? In fact, mercy is only mercy with the reality of hell. Mercy is undeserved. You deserve mercy. Hell, but mercy, you, des- you do not deserve it, but it's for you. In order for God to be just and extend his mercy, he must keep his promise to punish transgression. Hell is the brutal, eternal reality for those who do not repent, for those who do not fear his name, for those who do not have faith. And I think we all know that. I think there's not any of us that don't recognize at least to some degree, either by something that somebody told us once, but I want you to see in God's word, these are God's words. This is not something to be messed around with. God is not to be trifled with. But what about for those who do? Verse two, if you look at uh, four verse two. But for you who fear my name, Here's the, here's the opposite. Here's the complete opposite end of the spectrum. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. This is a picture of the Messiah coming, the one that they've been waiting on. Your Messiah will rise with healing in his wings. And then because of this, because of this Messiah rising up, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Charles Spurgeon, he's uh, kind of famous. He pastored a a struggling megachurch. Struggling megachurch sounds... Okay, I'll stop. Um, But he, he had this to say about this calf in the stall. He's tied up with a halter at night, but when the sun... Thank you. He is tied up with a halter at night, but when the sun rises, Jesus, the calf goes forth to the pasture. The young bull is set free, so the child of God may be in bondage. The recollection of past sins and present unbelief may halter him and keep him in the stall, but when the Lord reveals himself, he is set free. This is the reality of heaven. 
There's nothing but pure bliss and joy in the presence of God our Father. So we see the two distinctions between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not serve God. The question is, how do we get there? How can we be set free to the pasture of heaven? Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 16 again. Then, and if you weren't here for the past three weeks, this is just uh, after God has called out in his mercy for his people to return to him. He says, return to me and I will return to you. Then, those who feared the Lord, you see the difference. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. There's the distinction. The difference between those who are righteous and wicked, between those that serve God and do not serve God, between an eternity of hell and destruction and an eternity of heaven being set out to pasture is faith. It is for those who fear the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, not by working for it. not by doing better, not by following a list of commands, not by living a blessed life, not by trying harder, not by following three steps to have a better life, but by faith, by trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross to forgive us of our sins. Those who fear the Lord, those who believe and trust and have faith in God by his mercy, they all got together and they're they're here, after hearing this message of return to me and I will return to you, we don't know what they're saying, but I imagine it's beautiful. They all get together and they cried out to God in order to return. They're doing what God called them to do. Return to me and I will return to you. That's what they're doing. And we see that God keeps his promise. He pays attention and he hears them and he has a book of remembrance written before his face so that his children could always be before his eyes, so that they would be his treasured possession. And he says, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. God says this because they know the difference between a slave and a son. A slave at this time, they would serve because they had to. But a son? A son served because he loved his father. And he is loved by his father. And on the day when Jesus comes as a refining fire to judge humanity, those who fear the Lord, those who have faith, they will be spared as sons. How, how is this true? We are spared as sons because the son was not spared. We are spared as sons because the son was not spared. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, that we might be treated as sons and daughters. And why is a son or daughter spared from the wrath to come? Why? Because they're sons and daughters. Because they know their father. Because the father knows and loves them. 
the good news of the gospel is that God didn't send a program or a ladder or 10 ways, 10 steps to get to heaven, but he sent himself. And Jesus was not spared. The true and lovely son was not spared so that those who were utterly sinful could be adopted in as sons and daughters and be spared in his place. It comes by faith in this son. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life we could not live, but had to in order to get to eternal life. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died a death that we deserve to die, to be punished for our sins. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus was buried and was raised to life on the third day to show his power over sin and death forever. And he says, I am victorious. The work is finished. Only he who created life can resurrect it after death. Only God can reverse the horribleness that is death itself. And, <clears throat> and only he can remove the sting and gain the victory over death. In resurrecting Jesus from the grave, God reminds us of his absolute sovereignty over life and death. This is Romans 10, starting in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have, not, have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Hear the word of Christ today. Believe in the good news of the gospel that you have a risen king. Unlike other religions, Christianity possesses a founder who transcends death and promises that his followers will do the same. Jesus is the only one, in fact, the only God. You go to his tomb, he's not there. Every other religion was founded by men or prophets whose end was the grave. As Christians, we know that God became man, died for our sins, and was resurrected on the third day. The grave could not hold him. He lives and he sits today at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Acts 13, verse 38 through 39 says this. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... <clears throat> If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how we return. We behold the good news of the gospel. If we do not return, if we see this grace and we do not return, 
we nullify the grace of God to us in Christ Jesus. We say with our lives that Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, they're not enough. They're not enough to cover our sins. It is hard. It is hard to sin and yet take hold of the grace that is waiting there for us in the unchanging, always merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Father, but where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? This is why the gospel is the thing that we center our church around and this is why we preach it every Sunday. This is why we don't have necessarily a special Easter message because every Sunday we talk about this Easter truth. Because it's in the good news of the gospel that we remember that at the cross it is finished. Our sins are paid for ultimately and forever. And we remember our place and our identity and our purpose that we are secured because of Jesus. And so since that is true, this sin that I have is is embarrassing, it is hard to deal with, but in Jesus it is not condemning. And so I can stand at the foot of the cross and take the grace that he has for me. It will feel a little odd because we do not deserve it. This is the Jesus we trust in. This Jesus is the object of our faith. We believe in this Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and we believe in this Jesus for the sake of our repentance, for the sake of our returning because it is by Jesus that we are saved and it is by Jesus that we return and repent for the rest of our lives until one day we will not have to any longer. One day, we will be fully in the perfect presence of God and you and I will be perfect in glory with our resurrected bodies and we will never sin again and we will go out leaping like calves with complete joy because of the life, death, burial, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That one day is secured. How do we know How do we know that this is true? Because it's not up to any of us. God is for God. This is evident through the book of Malachi. God says in, verse, or in chapter 1, verse 5, Great is the name of the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And then verse 6, You are profaning my name. Verse 11, for From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 14, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Chapter 2, verse 2, take it to heart to give honor to my name. Chapter 2, verse 5, he stood in awe of my name. Salvation is not about us. He saves us for his name's sake, but this is the best news in the universe because it means that God's mercy is not up to us, but up to him because God is for God. 
since God is for God, it pleases God to show mercy to his creation that were created for his glory, that are forsaking that glory so that we can return and give glory back to the name that is utterly deserving of it. In the meantime, until glory, until we are all resurrected, we serve this wonderful Savior. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. God says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. In other words, obey my commands. Obey the gospel that calls you out of sin and into your purpose by living for the glory of God and for the salvation of others. Notice, this work of obedience comes only after God spares us by his son. We do not save ourselves. We do not repent ourselves into the kingdom of heaven. Our repentance merely shows that we have our eternal status. So in the meantime, we obey. We love each other well. We outdo one another in showing honor. We encourage, we teach, we rebuke, we grow in our love for this gospel. We continue to pray for the unsaved. We proclaim the gospel with our actions and our words. We cherish our time with our Father and with everyone else who has been adopted into this family. And then we go out with our lives and with our words and say, come join us. And when we sin, because we will, we return. We repent by grace. Until glory, we will continue to sin. So until glory, our lives should be marked by returning to the Father. And the good news of the gospel is that we can by Jesus. So in the moments of deep sin that you feel, in the moments of deep guilt that you feel over your sin, remember Malachi. Remember the mercy of your father. And remember what hell looks like. Life is short. Take time to run back to your Father who is giving you grace. I wanted to end us with 1 Corinthians 15. It won't be up on the screen, uh, but I just wanted you to listen to it. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The good news of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day. This is the message of Easter. This is what Christians have been celebrating for thousands of years together. And this is what we celebrate today. That Christ Jesus is risen and alive on our behalf. So how do we celebrate? We remember the gospel. We remember the gospel and how we do that here at Mission is through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. As we partake of the Lord's Supper together, if you fear God by faith in, by trust in, and by belief in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you're welcome to the table to partake as family to remember the gospel. However, I ask that you would remain in your seat if one of two things are true of you. If you are an unbeliever, or if you are in unrepentant sin. First Corinthians says that you would eat and drink in an unworthy manner because you would be profaning the name of God. If you are in unrepentant sin, if this is you, hear God's call to you. Return to me and I will return to you. Look at Jesus. God's grace is waiting for you. Remember the gospel in this time and return to obedience to it by faith in Jesus again. Come back to your higher purpose of glorifying God. Believe in the gospel of Jesus' death for your sins today. The sins that you are sitting in. If you are not yet a believer, hear God's reminder to you today of what is waiting for you if you are on your own. Without Jesus, there is nothing but eternal destruction waiting for you in hell. But it is no accident that you are here this morning to hear the mercy of the one true God. Turn from your sins to believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross for your sins to secure your eternity in heaven with him. Everything that we just read that described heaven, the leaping out of, of calves out of the stall, that can be true of you one day as well. Not by work, but by faith. By trusting in Jesus' work alone. 
So believe today. For all of us, here is our prayer. Father, we admit that we need this body and this blood to cover our sins. Would you, by your grace, remind us of the good news of the gospel every day that we may continue to return to your mercy. The reason we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday is because by it, we remember the good news of the gospel. We remember that this body and this blood were broken and shed for us. But we also remember that that's not how the story ended. That Jesus was resurrected on the third day. And so by this, by Jesus, you and I will one day be too. Let that fill you with hope. Let that fill you with joy. Because it is not up to you. It is up to Jesus because of the night when he was betrayed, when he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. That Resurrection Sunday is even a thing that we can celebrate. God, would you fill us with hope and joy as we look back to the cross, as we look back to the resurrection of Jesus. Because in that, in the good news of the gospel, we see our security. We see our way, our truth, our life. God, would you never let us forget this gospel? For those of us in the room who are not saved, God, would you save them? By your word, by your spirit, by your gospel, God, would you be moving and stirring in their hearts to save them? And for those who know you, but are maybe far from you. Maybe they feel like these people here in the book of Malachi. That they are just tired. God, would you renew their hearts this morning? Would you show them your mercy that they can return and that you will return to them by it? And for every single one of us in the room, would you drive the truth down deep into our hearts that we are adopted as sons and daughters and we are loved by a gracious and loving Father? (coughs) Nothing else matters. 
Would you let that be true of us, God? Would you give us the faith to believe that truth? For all of us in the room, I think there's a little bit of, I believe, help my unbelief. God, would you do that? And we know that because of the good news of the gospel, that because of your mercy to us, one day we will get to stand in your presence and we will get to worship you face to face. God, would you let that future reality give us hope in this reality today? Let us look forward to the day that is to come because of what we look back to. And in all of this, God, your name be glorified, your name be lifted up. And so as we turn to worship you, God, would you lift up your name? Would you fill our hearts with joy so much that we have nothing left but to sing your praises? Change us by your word, Father. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.